0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us, we are thrilled this morning to have Davide Sarah uh, with us of Algebra's truly expert on EU banking. Davide, to our global Wall Street audience, what is the single statistical or ratio observation of EU banking that maybe is not in the zeitgeist right now? What's the the SARA ratio that matters?
1: Well, I think the numbers that probably matters the most is the number of banking institution. Um, You know, the EU has the highest number of banks, we're talking about a number, which is a range of 28,000 institutions. Uh, that compares basically three times the size of the U.S., basically for the same economy. And if you take uh, the top five banks in Europe, in the U.S., in terms of concentration of deposits, they right. now have almost 50%. In Europe, they're not even 15%. Very and good. And so we got too many banks and... And not large enough
0: well very very interesting Davide and not only do you do the financial but you also look at the human condition here and so much of it is set up with boards that i would suggest really don't represent shareholders is that true the boards really don't at deutsche bank commerce bank whatever that they really aren't representing shareholders
1: well, yes and no, because the, right now, more than 70 to 80% of large European banks actually are held by institutional shareholders. So the reality is institutional shareholders can have a weight, but the reality is because about 30% are passive, no one is voting. They don't really care. They're mimicking an index. And that has become a problem. And that's why you see few activists stepping up and actually making a point simply because the majority has basically abdicated the role of stewardship that you still see in the US. Do, do you own any Deutsche Bank or Commerce Bank? We do not own any Deutsche Bank or uh, Commerce if they Bank merge, equity. Right? We do own some of the credit. If they merge, will be very positive for the credit status because you'll basically need a recap of some sort of the other. So you probably need equity at the bottom of the capital structure. So that'll be positive for credit. Equity, we'll have to see.
2: I know we were talking a little bit uh, about it last week, but d- does it make sense? This is, I guess, the only way in, in which you can really you know, cut costs because of the unions and because of some of the labor laws. But then Deutsche Bank is also dealing
1: with its U.S. investment arm, and I don't know how that fits into the conversation. Well, I think the, the, there are three issues here. The first one is under German labor laws, you can't really get a massive redundancy package and fire lots of people unless you have any mini-activity. Secondly, if you look at... Commerzbank and Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank has about 90,000 people. If you have contractors, you're almost 110,000 for a revenue base of 28 billion euro, which is below Goldman, which has a third of employees, less than 30,000. So the issue is Deutsche Bank has just too many employees for its revenue base. Secondly, inside Germany, Commerzbank has about 50,000 employees Mm -hmm. for an asset base, which is a quarter of the one of Deutsche Bank. So a merger between the two will strengthen and will ena- enable cost-cutting in Germany but will do anything, to the in- will do nothing to the international operation on Deutsche Bank. And as a result, you probably need, uh, you know, you're looking at 30,000, 40,000 employees of a combined uh, cost base. I have to go. It's a huge number. Um, David, what's your favorite European bank? Right now, on a standalone basis, our favorite are Intesa, Unicredit, Santander, and BMP.
0: That's sort of a retail skew there as well. You mentioned 15%, which I think for all Americans, Davide, is basically unimaginable. Who controls the politics of Germany, the politics of Austria, the politics of Italy? Is it the small banking lobby? Is it the mid-bank lobby? Or is there a conduit from, say, Unicredit right to the Italian political leaders? Who holds Who holds that power right now?
1: Well, first of all, in Europe, if you say banking, it's bad simply because the populist rhetoric uh... it's centered around banks of money they are not given to us and as a result they're bad guys uh, this is across europe it's as simple as that secondly in germany though because seventy percent of the banking market is actually state-owned whether it's sparkassen or landesbanken they hold the true power and hence the strongest lobby group are the sparkassen and the caste in france the combination of the two are the one which can basically make laws. The larger banks, forget it. They are basically uh, in the doghouse.
3: So one word echoed around trading floors following the latest jobs report, Goldilocks, Goldilocks, Goldilocks. Investors taking some comfort that the jobs market was running neither too hot or too cold and fueling the view that the rally in risk assets has a little further to go. Here in the studio to discuss is Ibrahim Rakbari, Citi Global Head of FX Analysis. Ibrahim, let's just begin with that word Goldilocks. I heard it so much Friday through the weekend and into Monday morning. Your view on whether that accurately describes the US economy right now.
4: I, I think it, it probably does. I think we're we're in a world that's ultimately uh, very supportive for for asset markets and for risk appetite. And and the the main the main pillars of that are that uh, growth indeed is 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 good enough. Is neither too hot nor too cold. And inflation will will be subdued. And all of that is being being underwritten by a very dovish central bank. So I don't think it's misleading.
3: So I caught up with the administration, and the administration <laughs> wants a rate cut and i'm trying to understand the justification for a rate cut at this point. Are you part of that group of individuals that thinks we could get a rate cut sometime soon from the fed? Uh,
4: yes, absolutely. I think that uh, we are dealing with a very a very dovish central bank and and ultimately with a combination of two forces that are pushing uh, pushing them in that direction. One is realpolitik if you like. We have an we have a big election coming up next year and of course part of the rhetoric is to both Uh, make it more likely that the economy stays strong and to position uh, this administration as a pro-growth administration. But the other and maybe intellectually more interesting question, and ultimately economically one, is how do you you formulate policy to avoid a major slowdown? Is there a way to beat the cycle, if you like? Because that's, I think, precisely what the Fed is trying to do.
3: Well, these kind of conversations worry me. They worry others as well, Ibrahim. The idea that you can beat the cycle. Does that make sense to you, that kind of language?
4: Well, I, th- I, I think it makes sense for me to try. Uh, I, I think in the end, you will you will fail, but I think there's something to the idea that uh, perhaps historically central banks or, or policymakers more generally have at times been slow to react to a changing picture. I think this Fed in particular has been obsessed for some time with not repeating the mistakes of the past. So I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the view that if you if you see a slowdown coming, try and come, try and, uh, uh, come into the, the act early.
3: The front page of barons over the weekend is the bull market unstoppable? And then the lead quote was as follows. The bull market recently celebrated its 10th birthday. Can it rally for another 10? We've heard it many times before, Uh, but it's worth repeating, bull markets do not die of old age. I have to say that a lot of criticism about the front page being a contrarian indicator. It was a very balanced piece once you read through it. But Ibrahim, that's kind of the position we're in right now. I think there's a little bit of complacency creeping through. And it's the idea that central banks can beat the cycle. They can carry on pushing this out. And the, the the view of Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell himself, that his old own objective now is to extend the cycle. Are we putting a little bit too much faith in central bankers and their
4: ability to do that? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I, I, and I should be clear that, uh, one, I think if we look at the most recent market developments, they clearly suggest that... Some, some, some markets are being uh, overbought. Uh, whenever melt-up enters the financial vocabulary, you have, to be, you have to be cautious. And the other is that clearly it can't just be central banks that safeguard this sort of Goldilocks environment. And I put much more weight on the combination of stabilization and Chinese growth, including the policy stimulus that they have had, uh, a peak in trade tensions, and then yeah. the Fed as a supportive act.
0: At the margin, does currency dynamics right now particularly dollar dynamics does it help us multinationals
4: i think broadly speaking yes uh, i think we're because we are effectively in a range bound scenario of course the dollar is is still strong and relatively highly valued but the fact that it's not getting aggressively stronger is i think a, a world that these multinationals I mean part
0: of with. the enthusiasm John's mentioning on the cover of Barron's uh, is the idea that multinationals can keep delivering down the income statement, right? Yeah, in your I, world doesn't get in the way right now.
4: So I think that the dollar is not helping, but uh, but all I'm arguing is it's not it's not hurting too much. And I think their their concerns probably uh, more recently have been centered around trade as opposed to uh, as, as opposed to perhaps the dollar. So again, I don't think the dollar is helping, but it's probably not top of their list of concerns.
3: The cheap guide, just looking back, I'll I'll put my hat on as the CIO of of Hindsight Capital, just for a moment, if that's okay. But the cheap guide for the FX market over the last couple of years, Ibrahim, is when global risk appetite is good, the dollar is weaker. And when global risk appetite is bad, the dollar is stronger. I mean, that's pretty consistent. That's maybe the one consistent framework that you can apply to the FX market over the last couple of years. If you're forecasting better risk appetite, uh, a more stable Chinese economy, Equally, I imagine you're forecasting a weaker dollar aren't you.
4: Eventually, yes, but I think there's a the devil is a bit in the detail because two two factors come into play here. One is uh, carry matters, so we are in a in a search for yield environment, and the dollar is uncharacteristically now a, a high yielder in in G ten exactly. It's 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 expensive to fund in dollars. We're looking for alternative funding currencies uh, uh, across the range, and the other is that we we don't think that. That improvement in risk appetite and the uh, improvement in the economic trajectory will be, will be a, a, a monot- monotonic uh, uh, dynamic. We think in particular that Europe for now lags some of the global improvement for European reasons, if you like. So particularly within G10, I think we're moving in that direction over the course of this year. But I don't think right now this is a, a dollar sell environment.
3: Is Europe the trouble spot for you at the moment?
4: Uh, sorry, I didn't. it's get...
3: is Europe the trouble spot for you at the moment, just globally it's, speaking? It's
4: certainly a laggard. Uh, I, I think it's there. Are clearly, a number of, uh, of, of uh, economies in the world that are struggling even more. But I think the the level of disappointment in Europe uh, is is right up there. Ibrahim, great to
3: catch up with you. Ibrahim Rabbani, Citie's global head of FX analysis.
0: pharaoh is brexit worn out i'm well i I got a little more interest in john but everybody as we know it is brexit worn out she was on with us 10 days ago or so and we got huge response from Catherine barnard who's like actually an adult on the legal minutiae the paragraphs the sentences of all this brexit eu trade stuff she is of course at cambridge and is definitive uh on this uh i love this the uk in a changing europe senior fellow i have no idea what that means professor thank you so much for joining us again where are the red lines right now
2: where where are the red lines well we don't know Is the honest answer they're looking a bit pink ie a bit fuzzy around the edge yeah the one red line that seems to still be there is theresa may wants to stop free movement of persons that's where individuals can go from france to germany and live there pretty much without restriction she wants to stop that for uk citizens going abroad and for polish and uh, hungarian citizens
0: going to the uk okay fine but i did some careful analysis ready for publication out of cambridge university standing in line at heathrow what's (laughs) what's the so what if people have to go movement through a different line at heathrow or wherever
2: uh, it's, it's not so much the sort of temporary movement for tourism purposes. It's um, for people who want to come to work. And at the moment, they can work in the UK pretty much without restriction. Crucially, they don't need a visa. Yeah. Um, if, if they come um, to the UK, uh, so if an American or a, or a Pakistani national comes to the UK to work on a long-term basis, uh, they need a visa, probably a mm-hmm. tier two visa, and those are really bureaucratic to get, and they're also very, very okay. expensive. The UK has got a visa regime, probably the most expensive right. in the
0: world. Well, well explained. Tell me what Boris Johnson and other Brexiteers will do today. It's been very centric, on Tory, Labour, the you know, no compromise, da da da. And then, of course, Prime Minister May shooting a high quality video, Spielberg like, and then, <laughs> and then, of course, she's going to trot off and see Macron and get her frequent flyer miles up what are the other guys doing what is brexiteer doing well what
2: brexiteers are doing at the moment is maneuvering to be them to be the next prime minister the trouble is they don't want to be the next prime minister now i.e this week or next week but they want to be able to do it in three or four months time when they think the deal is done and so but what they're really worried about is theresa may today is talking to the labor party the opposition labor party and they think this is an appalling decision. So the Brexiteers, people like Pretty Patel, um, who you might remember from the 2016 referendum campaign, she was part of the group with Boris Johnson and others. Yeah. Uh, she was saying, you know, it is absolutely unforgivable <clears throat> that Theresa May should be talking yeah. to the Labour Party. And, and ju- the, EU, the, or the EU thinks she should be talking to the Labour Party. I, they're uh, used to dealing okay. with grand coalition.
0: I mean, I get all this. John Farrell, Charles Moore writing in the Telegraph had a bar chart of like who's for, who's against regionally. Basically only London's for it is, is the summary.
3: I actually thought Prime Minister May's address yesterday was something she should have said years ago, Catherine. I mean, at the end of the day, this wasn't across party lines. They should have got together no. a long, long time ago. Why did it take so long <laughs> to get together and talk about a compromise?
2: I think there's a couple of reasons, partly to do with Theresa May's personality, that she is not a particularly collaborative individual. And secondly, in the UK, politics are very polarized. It's very party politics based, and it's also very tribal. People um, stick with their own tribe, come what may. And so the idea that you actually have some sort of grand coalition as you might have in Germany is totally anathema to our system. On the other hand, it would have been strategically clever to have actually got chatting to the other side from uh, the summer of 2016, because then they would have been forced to buy into whatever was produced. It would have been very hard for them to vote against, so we wouldn't have been where we are now.
3: So, Professor, I think one question that I've been asked again and again and again over here in New York is when is the real deadline? When do we have that (laughs) Greece-type crisis moment summit over in Europe where it hits midnight and they can't kick the can down the road any longer? Professor, is it this week?
2: Possibly. Possibly Wednesday night, because this is the EU um, emergency EU summit. And if they say no to us, if you remember Theresa May uh, asked for an extension till the 30th of June. If they say no to us, you can't have any more extensions. Then there really will be
0: a crisis okay.
2: Thursday and Friday. Well, can you give us Only like th- Can
0: you give us like eight or 10 p.m. Wednesday night?
2: <laughs> yeah, I can't, I'll, I'll come, yeah, absolutely. I'll come and tell you. Um, but that, that really is a, a crunch. Yeah. But the odd thing is, although actually we're due to leave the EU without a deal on Friday at 11pm on Friday, there's not a sense of crisis at the moment. So I think most people think the EU will give us an extension. The million dollar question is, what's the date of that extension? Will it be... Only to the 22nd of May. Why is that important? That's the date of the European Parliament elections, which at the moment we're not participating in. Or will it be the 30th of June? Right. Unlikely. That's what Theresa May wants, but unlikely. Or will it be a year hence? And that's what Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, is talking about.
0: Well, I, I must admit, folks, my observation of 10 p.m. at night, watching this in London, is totally different than from the distance of the United States of America. There's something about late-night parliamentary meetings. It's like on the edge oh, of did you Greece. enjoy that? It was like I, I, I did not enjoy it, but... No, it was not like theatre. It was like exhaustion. I always forget what yeah. a
3: one-issue country... The UK has become. Yeah, And then I go back and realise, yeah. and I'm reminded yeah. of it, Catherine. I just wonder, the Labour Party's actually done quite a decent job of trying to make it more than just about one issue. In fact, maybe that explains some of the success that Jeremy Corbyn had in the previous election. If we went to another election, would it be a one-issue election?
2: Well, that's a million-dollar question, because Jeremy Corbyn um, has really tried to talk about other things apart from Brexit. Brexit has completely convulsed um, the Conservative Party, Um, But if there is a general election, um, there's not one due till 2022, but most people think it's likely to occur before then. The parties will have to write manifestos to say what they want. And the manifestos won't just have one issue on it, Brexit, but it also have um, issues about the health service, education, uh, public spending and so forth. Um, but in reality, there's a good chance that it will be on Brexit because the, they'll have to write a paragraph or two to say, what do we want out of the future relationship?
0: One final question, Professor, and this goes to your expertise. Explain to our audience what European parliamentary votes mean. I mean, what, what are the British people vote? Who's voting in Britain for EU parliament votes? Is it the nation votes?
2: Yeah, so um, there's European Parliament elections every five years when all of the states, all of the EU27 or EU28 will send um, MEPs, members of the European Parliament, to sit in Strasbourg. And the elections take place pretty much on the same day, certainly around the same weekend across Europe. And at the moment, the UK's um, 70-odd seats in the European Parliament have been partially redistributed to the EU 27, to the remaining member states. Right. But that needs to be unpicked if we have an extension beyond um, June we will have to participate in European Parliament elections and, we will, yeah. and those seats will have to be uh, retained for the UK. And the European Parliament is actually a rather important body now. At the beginning, when it was set up, it was merely a sort of assembly and a talking shop. Yeah. Now it's what's called a co-legislator in most areas, so it, it's got really su- significant powers in um, making EU legislation, yeah. which is binding on EU 2027 20, or 28.
0: Most valuable. Catherine Bernard, thank you so Catherine, much. thank Professor you. Professor at Cambridge University, Just, uh, I, I immensely enjoy speaking to her with her real expertise versus the punditry. Okay, here's the ballet folks. If you work for a firm and you're doing a deal, it makes complete sense that if you're directly involved with that deal, you can't comment on it in the media. And then far more importantly, if you're tangential to a transaction underway, it's usually very clear that you cannot talk about it in the media. And then there's the idea of this is Bloomberg surveillance and we respect the pressure that our guests under so even if he was tangential and even if he was as brilliant as he is, we wouldn't be rude to Bob Michael and ask him about the Saudi transaction. Uh, we, w- we would not uh, do that as he is with J.P. Morgan and, of course, J.P. Morgan out trying to do the book on this uh, uh, huge and historic transaction. Bob, what I can do is ask you in fixed income about globally the insatiable demand for paper boy does it ring of 2006 is it the same good morning
5: tom it does and this is both a good time and a challenging time to be a bond investor the good part of it are the central banks tuvish tilt have taken a lot of pressure off of the markets so you don't have to worry about yields continuing to go higher and the balance sheet running down the bad is that this is all you're going to get. You're going to get a 2.5% 10-year Treasury And you're going to get credit spreads if you look at some of these new transactions you referenced in the market at 100 basis points over. But you've got to buy it. There's not a lot of inflation out there. There's
0: not a lot of inflation and there's not a lot of substitutes. Now, I don't mean, and again, Mr. Michael, seriously, folks, can't talk about this transaction. But there seems to be an idea in fixed income that I need to buy bills, notes and paper because I don't trust dividend yield. I mean, what's the what's the dialectic, if you would, almost between fixed income people looking at a dividend as a is a yield proxy? Well, of
5: of course we do. But but you've got to look at a company's ability to continue to increase its dividend on an annual basis. Because the one thing we know about fixed income, you have the reinvestment and compounding of, of interest. I think that for us, the interesting dynamic in fixed income is so much money has gone into cash and short duration over the last three years. That's waiting on the sidelines, waiting to come into the fixed income market.
0: And what is so important there is the phrase short duration, folks. If you buy two-year maturity, there's this massive desire to go out to a five-year maturity, five-year out to 10-year, et cetera. So that's what's going on now. People want to on maturities even though they can't.
5: They do. Everyone's scrambling for <laughs> scrambling. yield right now. Scrambling. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, continue, Bob, on that idea. I mean, scrambling absolutely captures it. Doesn't yes. it? Yes.
5: And 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 so they're 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 going out further on the yield curve. The flatness of the yield curve is a bit frustrating, so they're going into credit to pick up incremental yield there. They're going down in credit to pick up even more yield, and then they're going into the emerging markets.
0: I mean, I remember Bob and, and folks. The good news is I forget what the deal was. It was a bond deal in like oh six oh five, whatever, where people were scrambling for seven basis points, seven one hundredths of a percent yield, and I got to have that piece of paper. Is it that silly right now? It's
5: not that silly right now because there has been a lot of corporate issuance over the last few years. That's still sloshing around in the market. There's more issuance materializing in in the bond market right now. So supply is rising to meet demand in here.
0: Bob, and and folks with us, Robert Michael, Bob Michael, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, uh, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Global Fixed Income as well. Buried in your lengthy research is a great spreadsheet of expansion and contraction as compared to the drivers, the monetary environment and the market in positioning this is a famous bob michael billboard give us the value of that right now are we in expansion or are we in a contraction
5: we're we're most certainly in expansion if if you look at the employment data it continues to reflect that we're pretty much at full employment wages are going up moderately but the pleasing thing about this expansion is it's, it's growing at trend or just above trend, so it's not overheating resources and increasing inflation, which would get the Fed to react negatively by raising rates and continuing to run down its balance sheet.
0: And, and then, okay, if that's the case, where do you want to place right now? You mentioned going to credit. Do I want full faith in credit, or do I want to buy garbage credit uh, to pick up yield?
5: Until <clears throat> there's a recession... That's imminent, say within the next six months. You want to own credit and you want to go down in credit rating because you're getting paid for that yield. Without a recession, companies should be able to service their debt.
0: Bob Michael, thank you so much for JP Morgan. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast